Hello, and welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm Nadia Popovich. The world's oldest woman was said to eat up to a kilo of chocolate a week. That's 2.2 pounds. The question is, could it have helped her live longer? Well, it's a toss-up, says Dr. Joseph Bauer, biomedical research scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. On the one hand, chocolate has all those sugars and fats that don't do well for most of our waistlines. And as you might remember from our previous podcast on the obesity-cancer connection, expanding belts can often lead to shortened lifespans. On the other hand, dark chocolate contains a compound called resveratrol, which has been shown to improve the health and extend the lifespan of mice. Now, you may have heard of resveratrol before. It made a splash in the news some time ago, when research connecting red wine, which contains resveratrol, to longer life was published. Fountain of Youth in a Wine RX? Asked a 2009 headline from CBS News. Resveratrol was soon after seized upon by marketers as the next big thing in anti-aging supplements. But the truth is, research is still in its early stages. Dr. Bauer, who has been studying this compound for years, came to the Academy this June to give us a taste of the science behind the resveratrol hype. While resveratrol has shown promise in keeping mice healthier and keeping them alive longer, Bauer told us that human trials are only now underway. The health effects of this odd-sounding chemical are now being tested on a slew of ailments, from cancer to diabetes and even cellulite, but we're yet to get results from many of those tests. Now, I'll let you hear more from Bauer himself. Here he is speaking at the June 5th, 2012 event, The Science Behind the Hype, Resveratrol in Red Wine and Chocolate. The lecture was presented as a part of a slide presentation. You can download the accompanying slides on our website, www.scienceandthecity.org. There are a few gems in there you just don't want to miss. I want to uh, start the talk with a quote, uh, which is from a 16th century Swiss physician named Paracelsus, who said that wine is a food, a medicine, and a poison. It's just a question of dose. And I was inspired to start this way based on a lot of letters we've received in the lab from people who drink two or three bottles of wine a day <laughs> and are seeking our approval. Uh, we got photos from one guy who bathes in red wine and it was clearly stained orange. It wasn't his first time in the tub. <laughs> uh, if you leave here with just one thing from this talk, please make sure it isn't that you should drink two or three bottles of wine per day. <laughs> Everything in moderation. Having said that, I thought I'd talk a little bit about things that have been shown to alter human life expectancy. I have good news for the smokers in the audience. Uh, you have the opportunity to extend your life by up to about 10 years uh, simply by quitting. That's something not, not everyone can do, but clearly smoking is the, the worst thing that we can control. <laughs> Uh, as far as longevity, and, and really I feel like that's something that should always be said ahead of any theoretical discussion of things like resveratrol. In addition, you can see here the effect uh, of reducing BMI. If you're a little bit overweight, you get two or three years of life expectancy back from getting down to a healthy weight. Uh, if you're severely obese, uh, BMI over 40, um, you can get about 10 years back from, from bringing your weight back down to a healthy range in that situation. Uh, in addition, uh, as you may expect, uh, from regular exercise, you can get about a five-year extension of lifespan. 
based on the average of, of a bunch of studies that have been out there, they've been arranged, but all of them show at least some increase in life expectancy. Um, antioxidant vitamins, popular supplements that people take, A, C, and E, uh, have no effect whatsoever, uh, except that high doses of vitamin E may slightly increase mortality. Um, light wine consumption has been shown in many, many studies over the years to decrease mortality. Uh, but this recent one uh, in the Journal of Community Health actually uh, went the extra mile and calculated the expected difference in lifespan uh, with or without light wine consumption, which they defined as about an average of half a glass per day. And this is the benefit as compared to abstaining completely. And they calculated that benefit was about 5.2 years. Um, so that's a very substantial effect. And especially when you compare it to things like the calculated benefit for finding a cure for cancer, which is about 3.2 years. Uh, and that's obviously because people tend to get cancer when they're older, later in life, when they're also suffering from, from other co comorbidities and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and other things that, that, that end up still limiting their lifespan um, pretty quickly after cancer would have. And obviously this is the average of a great benefit in individuals who would have got cancer, averaged in with many individuals who would never get cancer. But I think it, it nicely makes the contrast and illustrates just how big a benefit this is that's been calculated for wine. So the question has been why this might be. And certainly there is some cardiovascular benefit to consuming alcohol. And in this study, they actually uh, went ahead and tried to extrapolate, based on people who drank hard liquor or beer, uh, what the benefit of just regularly consuming a low dose of alcohol would be. And they figured that was about two years. So there's 3.2 years unaccounted for uh, in, in why you're getting this benefit to lifespan from wine consumption. And the answer proposed in that study was that maybe the polyphenols in red wine are, are what's leading to this lifespan extension. So these molecules are a diverse family of plant-derived compounds. They are the major antioxidants in most fruits and vegetables. So not the familiar vitamin A, C, and E, but, but these things are, are really what's providing most of that antioxidant activity. They provide the color and bitter taste to a lot of different foods, and there's over 8,000 of these structures known. Uh, and this complexity has really been um, a hindrance to understanding what polyphenols do. People tend to look at this array of 8,000 different choices and just try vitamin C when they do trials. And so that's really <laughs> held things back, I think, a little bit. Here are some uh, very rich sources of polyphenols that you'll find in the diet, and most of these things uh, will probably be very familiar, the subjects of tonight's lecture. Um, also things like tea, which is well known to have health benefits, things like blueberries. Um, there's another compound of blueberries called pterostilbene that looks quite a bit like resveratrol, and there's a whole literature now building up around that as well. Maybe the most surprising thing to see up here is coffee. People don't often think of that as having health benefits immediately. Uh, but in fact, coffee is a very rich source of polyphenols. And some of you may have seen the, uh, the news coverage in the last couple of weeks of this recent trial in the, in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. And what they found in this study was that your chances of dying were about 12% lower if you're a man and 16% lower if you're a woman if you drink four to five cups of coffee per day. Uh, so this has caused a lot of waves in the scientific community. It's very difficult to do the math on this because coffee consumption is very much entangled with smoking. Uh, and, and so you get a lot of fights over how these mathematical models are working to try to disentangle those two effects. Uh, but this is the largest, most comprehensive study that's been done to date, and this seems to be the, the consensus so far. The other disclaimer I'd like to mention about coffee is that a venti mocha frappuccino doesn't count <laughs> as a coffee. <laughs> um, so the question is, if there are 8,000 different polyphenols, there are all these different foods that maybe have health benefits, why are we here to talk about resveratrol tonight? Um, this is the structure. It's a, it's a relatively simple, small polyphenol compared to some of the other things that you find. Um, and it's relatively specific to red wine and chocolate. 
And the reason we came to be working on resveratrol, at least in my lab, uh, actually had nothing to do with red wine. It was through an attempt to understand the mechanisms uh, behind the effects of caloric restriction in animals. And I'm going to tell you about that next. Um, then in the next part of the talk after that, I'll tell you what happened when we went and tested resveratrol in mice. Uh, and finally, at the end, I'll come back to what's happened in human clinical trials since then. So this is the major focus of my lab. <laughs> We really work on aging and, and want to know how to delay aging and age-related diseases. This is something that was considered sort of pseudoscience a couple of decades ago. Um, it's recently gained a little more widespread acceptance, primarily uh, because of the observation that single genes can alter lifespan. Up to the point where this was shown, people considered aging too complex to ever mess with. They thought that maybe the best you could do was prevent specific age-related diseases and improve health in later life, but really you were never going to affect the underlying aging process. I think experiments like this clearly illustrate that that's not the case. Um, these are lifespan curves for C. elegans, which are a small uh, roundworm you might find in your garden. They live about three weeks on average. This is the control group here. So this is the age in days, the percent alive. You can see these guys live about three weeks normally, and then they're all dead. If you mutate just one gene, you eliminate the age one gene in these worms, you get this lifespan curve shown here in blue. So you can get about a 10% or sorry, a tenfold lifespan extension from eliminating a single gene. And so what that clearly illustrates is that the aging process is not a law of nature. It's not something that you can never violate. It's not too complex to understand. A very simple change can affect it. Now that this has sort of permeated the scientific community and, and people realize in model organisms you can do this sort of thing. Um, the common refrain is that, well, fine, that's a worm that lives three weeks. Humans have been optimized for a much longer lifespan, and maybe you're never going to do anything in a human. Um, the truth is we don't know what the maximum human lifespan is, and our lifespan is increasing all the time uh, according to the best demography we have. So this is a figure from a paper by James Bopel, who is one of the leading human demographers uh, for aging research. And he made this figure specifically to refute the claim that human life expectancy was reaching a plateau. Um, so what he's done here is go back over about the last 150 years, so this goes back to 1840, and then he's plotted the life expectancy of the group that has the longest life expectancy. So that's why the symbols keep changing, because it's different countries that take the lead. And, and he's done this to try to avoid the effects of wars and of plagues and famines. Um, but what you can see when you do that is when you, when you treat the whole world and, and pick the group that's leading at any given moment, uh, you get this nice curve that's advanced very steadily. It's almost perfectly linear uh, since 1840. And at the end, there's, there's no change here. You can see that we're still right on this line. Um, and in fact, the slope of that line is, is 0.243. So that means for every day, you're gaining about six hours of life expectancy. Uh, so what he said during that lecture, and what I'll say to you now is that you know, if you've arrived here at 6 and you get in bed by midnight, this whole thing was free. <laughs> the other part of this slide, which is the reason he made it, was to put on, put on all these black bars, uh, which are predictions of the maximum human life expectancy. And he's carried them out to the year they were made. Uh, and so you can see these predictions always seem to fall right around what the current life expectancy is. Everyone keeps saying we've hit that plateau, and it never happens. We just keep proceeding right along through them. These red lines are the UN's projections of the path of, of human life expectancy. And you can see the UN always says we're going to get to where we were and then level off. Um, and they keep having to revise their estimates upwards. So, so far, there's really no evidence that human life expectancy is slowing down at all. That tends to cause people to worry a little bit because they think the older you get, the sicker you get. And so people view this as a problem, a public health crisis, that, that life expectancy is going up. 
And in fact, if you look at long-lived individuals, you find that the opposite is true. Uh, Thomas Pearls, who runs the largest human centenarian study, so looking at people who reach at least 100 years of age, um, has offered this quote to, to rebut that, saying, the older you get, the healthier you've been. And that's what these studies of long-lived individuals consistently show. You just don't get to be very old by being unhealthy. And overall, the people that make it to 100 are a much smaller burden on the healthcare system than people who don't. A perfect example of that is Jean Calment, who had the longest documented human lifespan at 122 years, uh, 164 days. Uh, so this is a picture of her at about 119. She lived on her own until she was 110, rode a bicycle when she was over 100, took up the sport of fencing at 85. When she was 121, uh, she released a hip-hop album that's basically <laughs> her reminiscing. This is the cover. It's called Mistress of Time. I think you probably could get it on iTunes. <laughs> you can find it on, on Google anyway. I've heard some clips. <laughs> um, so she became a celebrity um, when it turned out they were having a Vincent van Gogh festival. Um, I think the 100, they were celebrating the 100-year the anniversary of Vincent van Gogh's visit to Arles, which was her, her home city in France. And it was discovered at that time that she'd actually met him. <laughs> Uh, and so from that point forward, she became a celebrity, was constantly interviewed by the media, gave all kinds of different explanations for why she lived so long. This is the one I usually quote. Uh, she said, always keep your smile. That's how I explain my long life. And that's certainly a common theme that runs, runs among people who make it to advanced ages, that they are very content with their lives, feel a sense of purpose and well-being, and don't, don't get stressed out. Uh, but she was interviewed many, many times. Uh, and so if you look back through some of the other things she's offered, uh, it's that she pours olive oil all over all her food and rubs it in her skin. <laughs> drink port wine all the time, uh, and ate nearly a kilogram of chocolate per week, <laughs> which some sources put at two kilograms, but she said one. Uh, and so at that point, the question becomes, if we can live to 122 and we can be healthy at 110, you know, it, what is the potential limit to human lifespan? And we, we just don't know. Uh, but I thought I'd throw out there this, this concept of negligible senescence. So there are several different types of creatures on the planet that are well documented to, to have no detectable aging. That doesn't mean that they live forever, but it means that, for instance, a 200-year-old tortoise uh, is equally likely to die in the next year as a 20-year-old tortoise. So there's no age-related increase in mortality. And people have set out a couple of different times to go after both the bristlecone pine tree um, and the Aldabra tortoise uh, and to prove that this wasn't true, and, and they failed. So there are some pretty extensive papers trying to find any variable they can measure to, to show that it's getting worse in the older animals. And all that they really proved was that older tortoises lay more eggs. Otherwise, they're equally well off. So the next question is, you know, that's all well and good. There's plenty of examples, and it's interesting to talk about. But what can we do in a practical sense about our own lifespans? And the answer, at least in laboratory animals, seems to be caloric restriction. So this is a typical experiment shown here. What's been done is to give these uh, laboratory mice less calories. This is the percent alive versus time in months. You can see a control group here on the left. Uh, they live about two and a half years on average. If you then restrict their calorie intake by about 10%, you get the survival curve shown here, uh, a nice sort of quantitative uh, increase in lifespan. And if you restrict their food intake by about 50%, you get the survival curve shown here on the right. Uh, and so now you've reached the point where almost every animal in this calorie-restricted group is still alive at the point where the entire control group is dead. Uh, and, and so that's one of the diagnostic criteria for really interfering with the underlying aging process, that you can extend the maximum lifespan. You don't just make the survival curve more square by preventing early disease and hitting your limit. You can go past what was the limit. 
That was data from mice. People have gone backwards as far as yeast, um, but argued for a long time about whether or not this has any application for humans. And we still don't know the answer to that. Uh, but there have been studies going on for over 20 years now in rhesus macaques. And so this bridges a lot of the evolutionary distance towards humans. Uh, it gets you into a much longer lifespan where maybe it is more comparable to a human situation. Uh, and I think you can immediately see here from these pictures uh, that were released in 2009, uh, this is the restricted one over here, if that wasn't clear. Uh, and it, it makes a really big difference in, in their appearance and, as it turns out, in their survival. So this is, as of 2009, the results from that study. The CR group, the calorie restricted group, is here in red. Uh, and you can see they're living a lot longer. And maybe even more impressively, uh, they're living free of disease. So they're checking these animals for diabetes, for cancer, for heart disease uh, throughout their lifespans. Uh, and even more than the lifespan extension, you see that these animals go a lot longer before you can detect anything really wrong with them. And so that's led an awful lot of people to wonder why this is working. And we still don't know after all this time. This was first described in 1935. Um, and there's a lot of competing hypotheses still out there. A lot of things that aren't mutually exclusive, and, and a lot of these things may be going on together. But what I'm going to talk about uh, is the idea that sirtuin activity, so this is a, a class of enzymes uh, that, that Megan mentioned I'd worked on, uh, that those enzymes might be responding early to calorie restriction. It might be responsible for some of the other things that you see. And so the word sirtuin really means sirtu-like. And, and so the founding member of this whole class of enzymes is uh, this one, sirtu, that is a yeast protein. And in yeast, sirtu controls life expectancy, as illustrated here. So these are yeast with zero copies of the SIR2 gene, one copy, or two copies. Uh, and you can see it very nicely regulates how long those yeasts turn out to live. Based on that result, um, Lenny Garante's group uh, at MIT took yeast that lacked the SIR2 gene and tried calorie restricting them to see whether it might be responsible for some of the beneficial effects of caloric restriction. And what you see in that experiment is here's the wild type strain, the normal strain here in blue. If you calorie restrict, you get the survival curve shown here in green, so a pretty impressive lifespan extension, even in yeast. And if you take the certain mutant strain that has no copy of this gene, it has a shorter lifespan to begin with, and calorie restricting no longer does anything. So this has become a little bit controversial in the sense that this was shown in a number of other organisms, but people have debated back and forth over what's the right way to calorie restrict them, and if you set up the model in a different way or use a different strain. Sometimes it looks like another gene's more important. Um, but what really matters is, is what's going to happen in mammals. And so far, this seems to be the one that's holding up when you move on to the mammalian system. So this is the same experiment shown in mice. And in mice and in humans, uh, SIRT1 is the SIRT2 gene that is closest to that SIRT2 gene in yeast. Uh, and so this is essentially the exact same experiment. Here's uh, a line of mice that lacks SIRT1 completely. These ones in green have one copy, and the ones in purple have two copies. Uh, and so you can see already that there's a bit of a survival effect, or quite a big one, if you lack the gene completely uh, in the control animals. And then if you calorie restrict those three strains of mice, uh, you pretty dramatically extend lifespan in the ones that have one or two copies of SIRT1, but you have no effect on lifespan at all in the mice that don't have SIRT1. So this was really the motivation behind trying to find things that would activate this gene and maybe mimic some of the beneficial effects of caloric restriction. And that led uh, David Sinclair at Harvard Medical School and Conrad Howitz at a company called Biomole um, to go through a large library of potential drugs and try to find something that would turn this enzyme on. So they used a robotic screen uh, and an assay that had been developed at Biomole. And as you may have guessed, what came out of this screen, the number one hit, was resveratrol. Um, and obviously that was very exciting since there was already uh, a well-known benefit of, of red wine. This thing is something that's 
produced by plants in response to stress. Uh, and so if you like New York wines better than California wines, uh, the vines are a little more stressed here. In California, they actually have a lower resveratrol content because you don't stress the grapes out enough. The weather's too good for them. Uh, obviously, it's found in red wine. It's found in a lot of Asian medicinal herbs as well. So that was another promising indication there might be something to this. Uh, it was known to have cardioprotective and neuroprotective effects already at the time it was discovered in this screen. Uh, and just a couple years before, it had also been the number one hit in a screen for tumor suppressors in mice. Um, so this looked exactly like what you would want a calorie restriction mimetic to look like. Uh, and obviously, it was very exciting to see at the time. Now, the scary thing is when you're dealing with polyphenols, the, the world isn't, isn't such a straight line. They have more than one target, and, and even resveratrol at that time was already known to bind to a lot of different enzymes. So here's SIRT1 up here. I'm not going to go through this whole slide, but the point is that it is not a specific activator of SIRT1. It's a molecule that does all sorts of things, one of which is turning on SIRT1. Um, and so just because resveratrol does something, you can't necessarily say that it's this pathway. Nevertheless, if you go back to that yeast experiment and now do the exact same thing that was done before, only now you treat with resveratrol instead of calorie restricting, um, you can see that you extend life here in the yellow compared to the wild type in, in red. And if you take that SIR2, uh, the strain that lacks SIR2, that has a short lifespan uh, here in blue, and then you treat with resveratrol, nothing happens to that lifespan. Um, so it does seem to be dependent on SIR2 in yeast. Uh, and those sorts of conclusions have held up in worms and flies. And so people have had variable results in different labs around the world and argued about what really the magnitude of the change is. This slide summarizes the maximum effects that have been reported in a couple of different laboratory species. Uh, so you can see yeast, uh, those same worms that I was talking about at the beginning, C. elegans, uh, Drosophila, so fruit flies, uh, a short-lived species of fish that's been used for a lot of aging studies these days, uh, all had pretty impressive effects in some of these studies. And where I got involved in this process was, was answering this question at the bottom, what would happen if we treated mammals with resveratrol? So the experiment that we set up was to ask whether resveratrol would mimic lower caloric intake in mammals. And we really set this up as two different experiments. So this is meant to illustrate the, the, the sort of average lifespan, average food intake here. If you increase your food intake, lifespan shortens. If you decrease it and calorie restrict, lifespan increases. And so we wondered if you could take mice on this normal diet, uh, treat with resveratrol and extend life maybe get some of the benefits of caloric restriction. And we also did a separate experiment to ask if you could take mice on a high-calorie diet and maybe rescue them from some of those detrimental effects and make it look like they weren't consuming so many calories. So when we did this, the, the first thing we detected was an improvement in motor coordination. So this is an assay called a rotor rod, which measures the ability of the mice to, to balance up on this rotating rod as it accelerates over time. And you can see here, these are four different time points throughout the study. These are the SD is standard diet here, so these are the lean mice on a normal diet. And you can see they do pretty well, uh, maybe get a little better just from a training effect. Um, but don't, don't really change that much over the course of the experiment as they get older. Uh, if you look at mice fed a high calorie diet, which is what the HC means here, these mice are obese. They don't do nearly as well, um, and they again stay about steady through the course of the experiment. If you look at those obese mice treated with resveratrol, which is what the R is down here, um, you can see that over the course of the experiment, as they've been treated longer and longer, they got better and better at this assay, and, and they recovered to be about as good as the, as the lean mice were. Uh, so we took that to be a promising sign. Uh, but I think the most impressive thing we saw in, in these animals was that their gene expression profiles really did look like they were calorie restricted. So this slide summarizes a, a lot of data. We've just tried to color code it to make it intuitive. Uh, for each of these four different tissues, what's been done here is to take a gene expression profile and color code the, uh, the effects uh, on different genes from calorie-restricted groups from most upregulated to most downregulated gene. That's what e each of these bars is one gene. 
Uh, and then we've color-coded the effect of resveratrol on the same genes in the right-hand column. And so you can see just visually there's a really strong agreement between which genes are, are up and down regulated by calorie restriction and which ones are affected by resveratrol. Really more than we had even hoped for. We were really, really shocked by this result. And it was replicated by another lab at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison uh, pretty shortly afterwards. So this does seem to hold up. And it's, it's really a striking correlation. One of the things that came out of those studies of gene expression was that genes related to mitochondria seem to be upregulated. So mitochondria are the structures within your cells that convert the fuels you're eating into usable chemical energy for the cell. Uh, these are extreme close-ups of the muscles on the left side here. So these are electron micrographs, and the Ms indicate mitochondria, which are these faint blobs here and these much darker, larger blobs in the resveratrol-treated group. And the consequence uh, of having more mitochondria, what you would expect would be that you could run farther, potentially. And that's exactly what was shown by this group. <laughs> This was done by a group in France, um, and they got the mice in the treadmill, took videos, and, uh, and did this for a large cohort of mice, and found that on average, the ones treated with resveratrol were able to run about twice as far as the ones that were not treated at all. And that's despite never having been on the treadmill before. These are completely unexercised mice that are spontaneously able to run twice as far. And so it takes them a while to get exhausted. But if you watch long enough. <laughs> uh, and then the biggest effect that we saw um, in our own lab was really that in the obese mice, we rescued a lot of the diabetic phenotypes. Um, so we, by a, a number of different assays, rescued insulin sensitivity. Uh, one indication of that was that fasting insulin levels were restored. Uh, so that's shown here. This is, again, the standard diets of the lean mice. You can see fasting insulin levels are falling a little below one here. If you put them on that high-calorie diet, make them obese, uh, you more than triple insulin levels. And if you add resveratrol on top of that high-calorie diet, you bring it back down to very close to, uh, to what it would be in a lean mouse. Similarly, if you look at the livers from these mice, uh, these are whole livers, putting them on that, on that high-calorie diet causes fat to accumulate in the liver, and it nearly doubles the size. If you add resveratrol, the liver drops right back down to normal size. Uh, and most impressively, if you add resveratrol on top of the high-calorie diet, you restore their lifespan. So this curve shown here in black is the survival of the lean mice. The red curve shows what happens when you put them on that high-calorie diet and make them obese. So you significantly shorten lifespan by doing that. If you add resveratrol on top of the high-calorie diet, you can push the lifespan curves right back to where they are in the lean animals. So they're not statistically different from the lean animals at that point. Now, obviously, all of these things could be happening if resveratrol was a diet aid and it was making the mice leaner, and they were just like the control animals. Uh, but that was not the case at all. So here, representative mice. Uh, on the standard diet, this guy kind of stands up and runs in circles, and you try to snap a shot right when he's right there. Um, but these guys, you can see, are basically pancakes. Uh, they, they lay on their stomach, they don't move at all, uh, and they're equally obese in the resveratrol-treated groups at this dose. So it has received some coverage that if you treat mice with higher doses, you can cause them to lose weight, and we've repeated that as well. If you go about 10 times higher than the doses we were using in this study, they will drop body weight. Uh, but we see the lifespan extension and the rescue of diabetic phenotypes without causing any loss in body weight. And so this is my summary slide for the obese guys. <laughs> If anyone knows where this appeared, please uh, let me know. I've been using this uncredited for a while, and I've uh, found it uncredited all over the internet, but, but I've never found who really drew it. <laughs> so that was the summary for the obese mice. In the lean mice, we do see improvements. We see decreased cataracts. We see better bone health. Uh, we see those, those improvements in motor coordination and endurance. Uh, but what we don't see in lean mice is, is lifespan extension. So these are four different experiments, two by us on the top. Um, where we've taken lean animals and added resveratrol, and you can see really the survival curves are not different in this case. Um, here's a higher dose, and we see the same thing. 
Um, these are curves from the NIA's intervention testing program. So the National Institute on Aging runs a program specifically to test candidate compounds that people think will extend mouse lifespan. Um, and, and they produce these curves with many more mice than we have at three different centers simultaneously. Uh, and, and so this is really pretty definitive that resveratrol in the lean, healthy mice is not further extending lifespan. Uh, and so I think the main thing to take away from this is that there's really a lot more basic science to do. Uh, we don't fully understand how calorie restriction works or how to copy it. Uh, and certainly we're interested in continuing to try to figure out a little bit more about this. But resveratrol certainly does have some health benefits. And in the meantime, we really want to figure out how that's working. Another thing to point out is that many questions about the mechanism remain. As I alluded to, uh, we really don't know how much of the benefit of resveratrol is due to SIRT1. Um, you know, I showed that slide that had the whole web of, of different targets coming out of resveratrol. And, and it's really very difficult to isolate which effects are due, which of the benefits on health are due to which of those effects of resveratrol. And so that's causing a lot of controversy in the field now. And a lot of work is being done to try to tease that apart. But we really don't know the answer yet. In addition, um, as has actually happened to a lot of different drugs, once you get them into uh, clinical trials, people have done a little bit more biochemistry and started to question the idea that resveratrol even directly activates CERT1 in the first place. Uh, it certainly does activate CERT1, uh, but it's, it turns out to be a very hard thing to prove that once you get it in a cell that resveratrol is physically binding to the CERT1 enzyme and not doing all these other things that end up activating CERT1. Um, and so the whole community that, that, that's doing basic research in this area right now is very much uh, caught up in these topics and trying to really nail down the mechanism by which resveratrol has these health benefits. So I'm just going to show one piece of data on this subject, uh, which is at the bottom of this slide. Uh, this is from a paper we just published uh, last month. And what we did here was measure the activity of a mitochondrial enzyme. So these bars uh, can be thought of basically as the mitochondrial content of skeletal muscle tissue. And we're looking at normal mice here in white uh, and mice that lack the SIRT1 enzyme in black. Uh, and so you can see on the standard diet here where you have lean, healthy mice, there's a little bit of a reduction in the mitochondrial content of the muscles uh, just from lacking the SIRT1 enzyme. If you put them on a high-fat diet, uh, you cause the mitochondrial content to drop off pretty precipitously. Uh, and, and this last one here is what happens if you add resveratrol on top of the high-fat diet. And you can see that you rescue the mitochondrial content specifically in the normal mice, and nothing at all happens in the ones that lack the SIRT1 enzyme. So we do think that it, it's, it's pretty clear, and we have this, this type of evidence for a lot of the other health benefits, that you really do need SIRT1 to get the full effect of resveratrol, and at least some of its effects are going through that pathway. At the same time, we have shown that there are other benefits that don't require SIRT1 at all. Um, and in fact, we uh, have some of the anti-diabetic effects even when SIRT1 is not there. Uh, so we're very interested in teasing apart exactly how that's working. And I just want to make sure you don't leave this talk with the idea that it's a linear pathway from SIRT1 to everything good. There's a lot more basic science to be done here. Um, but I thought for this audience, I would let that be the end of my discussion of that topic and, and switch to what's going on in human clinical trials. There are about 46 trials going on right now that are registered at clinicaltrials.gov. A lot of the resveratrol trials deal with extracts, which are not regulated by the FDA. And so people are under no obligation to register these things. So the, the real number is probably quite a bit higher than 46. Uh, the major topics these things are devoted to are diabetes, cancer, brain injuries. There's a lot of um, obscure ones, like there's one on, uh, looking at the effects of resveratrol on cellulite. Um, there's certainly a few odd topics like that. Out of all these trials that are going on, only a few of them have reported results to date. So there's really not that much data to look at at this point. Um, and certainly we can expect a lot in the next few years as all these different trials get completed. But I'll start uh, by talking about the safety of resveratrol because that's what most of the, uh, the trials that have finished and, and reported their data have, have dealt with. 
most of them have done acute dosing of up to about five grams per day and found that it's generally well tolerated. There's very few side effects, uh, with the exception that anytime you go over about one gram per day, um, you end up with some gastrointestinal side effects in a subset of the patients, which are uh, pretty severe and unpleasant from what I've been told, um, but they do resolve as soon as you stop taking it. Um, so nothing life-threatening, but, uh, but certainly something that stops people from taking supplements pretty quickly in some of these studies. Um, just to put things in perspective, red wine has about five milligrams, if you're lucky, uh, in a bottle. So you'd really have to drink a lot of wine to be getting in the range where you cause these problems. But you can do it pretty easily with supplements if you try, um, and especially if you uh, overindulge and you see people taking more and more supplements every day, and uh, some of those people regret it. <laughs> uh, and so finally, the, the safety trials have all been pretty encouraging, but they've been small numbers of people, they've been short-term studies, uh, and, and really nobody should be of the opinion that taking large resveratrol supplements is proven to be safe. We need much longer and larger studies before we can say that, and certainly anyone who is thinking about supplements um, should be aware of that, that really you are putting yourself in the experimental group, and it, this isn't a known fact that it's safe at this point. That being said, um, a few of the studies have reported variables beyond safety, and the first one was uh, looking at blood flow. Uh, in this case, they were looking at cerebral blood flow and oxygen uptake into the brain, uh, the study referenced up here at the top. And they concluded, uh, based on these improvements in blood flow, that resveratrol might have beneficial effects on cogni cognition. Uh, in this study, they used young, healthy volunteers who basically got perfect scores on most of their cognition tests. Uh, and so they didn't see any improvement, but the same group has now moved on to uh, studies on people who are cognitively impaired and doing much larger groups and remains optimistic that this will actually result in improved performance in, in cognitive tests. Um, similarly, the second study to report uh, on resveratrol supplementation uh, showed improved blood flow variables again, uh, this time in overweight and obese individuals. Um, so this would be predicted to think that you could lower blood pressure uh, and do things like improve atherosclerosis, although really that, that remains to be seen if those endpoints uh, come out of this. The first study that really directly addressed a disease model was this one in the British Journal of Nutrition. And what they did was enroll type 2 diabetics. And I think one of the really interesting things about this study was the dose they chose. Uh, they used 5 milligrams twice a day. So that's the equivalent of about two bottles of red wine, but this is the first study that used a non-lethal dose, if you put it in wine terms. <laughs> Still not advisable, but it's think, making it much more realistic to think that some of this could be related to what you see from wine. Uh, and so what's shown on the graph here is the glucose levels after a meal uh, in placebo-treated individuals are the ones that got resveratrol. So these are type 2 diabetics to start, remember. About 30 minutes after they have a meal, you see this rise in glucose. The red line indicates about a normal fasting glucose range. So you see this rise above that uh, in the diabetics. And you can see a lot of variability based on these error bars. But in the resveratrol-treated group, there was a very significant reduction in the average rise in glucose after the meal, um, indicating that this really had some promise in, in treating diabetes in humans. The next study that came out was this one. Um, with a similar theme, but now looking at pre-diabetic older adults. Um, so maybe something that actually applies to a lot more people uh, who are at risk for diabetes. They also went, went way higher on the dose, and so now they're in the one to two gram range where you do have the, the potential for side effects in this study. It's not clear um, that you need such a high dose to get these effects, so they saw no difference between their one gram or two gram patients and pooled the data. Um, and so that maybe implies that you could go lower and still get some similar effects. Nevertheless, if you, if you look at the, the same sort of test from the last slide, only this time we're graphing it over time, 
Um, this is meal-induced glucose excursion. So they eat a meal here. This is their blood glucose over time. It goes up um, and comes back down a little bit. And if you treat with resveratrol, you lower you know, the, the height of that peak. So you keep blood glucose under a little bit better control. At the same time, they measured insulin. Uh, and here you see the same story. In the resveratrol-treated group, insulin is also lower at the same time as you're lowering glucose more, which indicates you're more sensitive to the insulin. It's acting better, and less insulin is allowing you to absorb the sugar and keep your blood sugar under control. Um, so again, this looks very promising in terms of treating diabetes. But the one that really brought it full circle for me um, was this study in, in cell metabolism at the end of last year. And, and you can tell from the title of this paper um, that they treated humans with resveratrol and basically on their own concluded that the effects they were seeing in the humans resembled caloric restriction. Um, so this was really gratifying to see based on, on where we had started in the mice that you could really reach this conclusion in, the, in a human study. Uh, in this case, they're treated with about 150 milligrams per day. So this is the dose uh, of a lot of different supplements you might buy. It's a little beyond where you could get with red wine. Um, but these are obese men who are not diabetic to begin with. Uh, and they see the same type of thing you saw in the last two studies where glucose levels go down with resveratrol treatment, insulin goes down, uh, and consequently insulin resistance has been reduced. Uh, but they also went on and measured a lot of other things, like inflammatory markers, which were suppressed. They measured fat liver in the subjects. And so this is only a 30-day intervention. Uh, and again, you see a lot of variability in, in the fatty liver, but there was a significant reduction in the amount of liver fat in the humans treated with resveratrol for just one month. Uh, and that, again, is something we had seen in the mice, so very gratifying to see that this might hold up in humans. They also saw Im increased mitochondria, or increased ability of mitochondria to oxidize fat. Um, so this is oxygen flux in mitochondria that have been isolated from the muscles of these people. They give them as much fat as they can handle and watch the, uh, the, the oxygen disappear, which essentially indicates how fast that fat's being burned by the mitochondria. And so you can see in the resveratrol-treated group here on the right, uh, they're able to, to burn fat a little bit faster than the ones who are not treated with resveratrol. Uh, and so the last study, um, that's been published at this point using pure resveratrol is, is this one, um, a study that enrolled survivors of heart attacks uh, who had been at least six, month out, six months out from their last heart attack uh, and treated them again with this low dose that's now in the range of a couple bottles of red wine uh, for three months, so a little bit longer than any of the other studies. Uh, and in this case, they were able to show that LDL went down by about, LDL cholesterol went down by about 14%. Um, they improved left ventricular function and, and some blood flow variables similar to that first study I mentioned. Uh, and in this case, they saw no effect on inflammation uh, or on HDL cholesterol. So I've restricted the discussion to this point up to, uh, up to this point to the studies that used pure resveratrol because there's simply too many using complex extracts and it's very hard to interpret what's due to resveratrol and what's not. I just made one exception um, to show this study for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, they used a grape extract plus and minus resveratrol, so hopefully you can isolate the effect of resveratrol still, even though there's some other things present. Um, and the, the main reason to include it is because they did this uh, for a full year, and they did it in patients who were already receiving statins. Uh, so this is the first time resveratrol has really been put up against the standard of care. These, these are high-risk patients for cardiovascular disease already receiving the therapy they would normally be receiving, and then plus or minus the resveratrol supplement on top of that. And even in these patients, uh, this group was able to show a decrease in inflammatory markers. So CRP, TNF-alpha, and PIA1 are all typical inflammatory markers that are, uh, are uh, measured in the serum of these patients and considered to elevate their risk for cardiovascular disease if these things go up. Resveratrol suppressed them all by about 20 or 25%. Uh, 
Uh, in addition, resveratrol increased interleukin-10, which is considered an anti-inflammatory molecule in the circulation, uh, which might be related to the to decreased inflammation on the other factors. Um, so this is really, you know, the conclusion of the study was really that resveratrol should be considered as an additional therapy on top of statins in these high-risk patients. And obviously, larger studies are needed that can replicate this before that's going to happen, but I hope this will be the inspiration for those studies. And so just here at the end, I thought I'd put in a few slides specifically on the topic of chocolate, because this is going to be by far the most controversial recommendation uh, if people are being told to, to consume chocolate regularly. Uh, clearly, there, there is a high polyphenol content in chocolate. One of those polyphenols is resveratrol, and those things certainly are expected to be beneficial. But of course, chocolate comes with a lot of sugar and fat, too. And it's a little bit trickier to tease out what the net effect is going to be. So a lot of the discussion on this subject has been prompted by two recent observational studies. Uh, the first that concluded that people who have a high chocolate intake have about a 39% lower risk to have heart attack or stroke. Uh, and the second one on the bottom showing that in older women, uh, there's a sweet spot, if you pardon the pun, for the amount of chocolate intake uh, on the risk of heart failure. Uh, so women who, I believe it was one to three servings of chocolate per week uh, resulted in about a 32% lower risk of heart failure. Uh, but if you ate more than that or less than that, there was no benefit. So these are all observational studies, and obviously the, the pressure's been on to, to prove that a real intervention can do this, and it's not just related to something else about the lifestyle of these people. Um, based in part on those studies, a number of groups have gone back and done what's called a meta-analysis. So on these graphs, uh, these are each of these lines represents an individual study that was done previously, and these have all been combined mathematically. Um, each of these points in the center of a line represents the average from that study that it's characterizing, and the line shows the range of data within that study. Uh, and so one of the benefits that's been claimed for uh, chocolate intake is lowering LDL cholesterol, and you can see, actually, if you look at the different studies, like there are ones like this one that went the wrong way, uh, LDL seemed to increase in that study, but the majority of them have shown a decrease. And if you mathematically combine these and treat them all as if they were one big study, you'd calculate that you lower uh, LDL cholesterol by about 5.9 milligrams per deciliter. So that's maybe 5% of what you would get, 5 to 10% of what you would get with a statin. It's not a substitute for medicine, uh, but it is statistically significant. We've calculated uh, less than a one, or about a 1% chance that that could have happened by fluke. So most likely that, that's a real effect. Um, then maybe the more impressive benefit that you see with resveratrol is a lowering of blood pressure. And so the meta-analysis here on the right is for that. Uh, and here you can see the studies are in a little bit better agreement. Most of them do agree that, that uh, chocolate is able to lower blood pressure. And the effect here is about uh, four and a half millimeters of mercury. Uh, so that's a little bit more significant. It's still not as good as actual blood pressure medication, but it's getting into the 50% range for the effect that you would get with a, with a drug. Uh, and certainly it's a much more pleasant way to, to get that effect. Uh, finally, there is this study modeling the benefit of chocolate that came out just last week, so I thought I'd stick it in here. And this is, again, all based on math, on those types of meta-analysis that I showed, calculating the different benefits that people have shown in the past and extrapolating. Uh, and, and what they did was calculate what would happen if you took 10,000 people, treated them with 100 grams of dark chocolate per day for 10 years, and they figured that that would prevent uh, 85 strokes or heart attacks. So obviously that's not a huge benefit, but it makes a big difference to 85 people. Uh, and the great news there is that it is a net benefit overall, that they're calculating you can eat an awful lot of chocolate and actually come out slightly ahead uh, rather than way behind. <laughs> now, the one disclaimer I want to put up there for any discussion of the health benefits of chocolate is that 
these people are controlling for BMI. So this is at a given body weight. If you've eaten a lot of chocolate, you're better off. That's probably true. If you eat a lot of chocolate and gain body weight, <laughs> you're not going to be better off. <laughs> so it's just important to draw that distinction. Not just adding 100 grams of chocolate to what you normally eat isn't necessarily a good idea. Um, so just a few final thoughts to kind of sum up what I've been telling you. Uh, for both resveratrol and chocolate, there are promising data at this point, but the effect sizes are generally pretty small, and we certainly need much longer and larger-term studies before we can make really definitive recommendations before your doctor's going to be putting you on these things. Um, in the case of wine, the benefits really are pretty well established, but moderation is the key there. Uh, there's certainly things go downhill quickly if we uh, overindulge in anything that contains alcohol. So with that, I'll stop and thank all of you for listening. This lecture was presented by Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. For more information, visit www.scienceandthecity.org or www.nyas.org backslash nutrition. And if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Email scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Signing off for now. We'll catch you next time.